Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, June 22nd. In today's news, President Trump's pick to replace the Manhattan U.S. attorney he fired over the weekend spent years defending the big banks. The president is fuming about his small crowd in Tulsa. And a Minnesota jail is allegedly giving special treatment to the officer charged with killing George Floyd. But first, the big idea. President Trump's remark at his Saturday night rally in Tulsa that he asked top government officials to, quote, slow the testing down for the coronavirus sparked harsh rebukes from experts and intense frustration from his own staff who say that he is undercutting their efforts to reassure Americans as the contagion continues to kill our countrymen. The president's comment came on the same day that eight states reported their highest ever single-day case counts. Public health experts say testing is a crucial part of controlling this pandemic. But in his first campaign appearance since the virus hit America, Trump called it a double-edged sword. Here's the bad part. When you test, when you do testing to that extent, you're going to find more people. You're going to find more cases. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. On Sunday, Trump's chief trade advisor, Peter Navarro, called Trump's comments tongue-in-cheek. Others in the White House also claimed it was just a joke. But behind the scenes, several senior administration officials involved in the coronavirus response expressed frustration with Trump's comments to my colleagues Yasmin Abu-Talib, Taylor Telford, and Josh Tassi. One senior official described the coronavirus response as something of a political albatross. This person noted that administration officials and the vice president have been trying to convince the public that Trump is working tirelessly to stamp out the virus and faster than ever before, but that Trump's comments undermined that message. Trump has long viewed the rising coronavirus numbers as a negative storyline for him because he believes he'll be blamed for more cases, and he associates a rising number of cases with bad publicity. Two senior administration officials say he has also expressed skepticism to other administration officials that cases are being overcounted. In fact, public health experts, including those inside the government, say it is very likely an undercount. The two officials said that in recent weeks, the president has made a concerted effort to play down the virus and, quote, move on to other topics such as the economy. Even as the number of deaths per day in America remains at about 800, Trump has encouraged states to reopen, told Americans to resume normal life, and flouted his own government's advice to wear a mask while out in public. Trump likes to say the pandemic is nearly over, even as the country confirms more than 20,000 new cases on average every day, and the national death toll lurches past 118,000. Trump has taken to describing new outbreaks that arise as embers. But yesterday alone, we had more than 30,000 new confirmed cases. And in our biggest states, reopening the economy has come with a spike in infections. Last week, Texas, Florida, Arizona, and at least seven other states reported their highest weekly infection rate averages. But there's little sign that states are reconsidering politically popular decisions to open the economy. In parts of California, where more than 5,000 people have died of the virus, folks will be allowed to see movies in theaters starting this weekend. For the first time since the stay-at-home order began in early March, Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat who extended the stay-at-home order statewide back then, has declared that there is no turning back after more than three weeks of incremental economic opening. The state has recorded 167,000 total infections and is now reporting its highest weekly average of new cases, about 2,785 since the virus began. 
in Southern California, Los Angeles, and Orange counties. They're in the process of opening their economies entirely, perhaps by the end of this month, despite recording some of their highest numbers of new cases in months. And officials are warning that more young people across the South are testing positive. In Mississippi, state health officials blamed a few big clusters of new cases to fraternity rush parties. In Texas, the governor says that people under 30 are making up a majority of new cases in several counties. He blames this on young people going to Memorial Day parties and hanging out in bars. And in Florida, the governor said the median age for newly diagnosed coronavirus cases over the last week was just 37 years old, decades younger than it has been in past months. Meanwhile, here in Washington, D.C., restaurants and gyms are reopening their doors today. After three months off, D.C. residents apparently were ready to hit the gyms. The 6 a.m. slot at all five Vita Fitness locations here in the district were completely booked for this morning. The D.C. Health Department reported 36 new confirmed cases of the virus on Sunday and two deaths, a 62-year-old man and a 73-year-old woman, bringing the total number of infections here to 10,000 and the deaths to 533. And we should not lose sight of the global havoc this pandemic continues to wreak. There's a report out this morning that shows cases of poaching are surging across Asia and Africa as desperate communities seek food and income after lockdowns have plunged them deeper than ever into poverty. And in Mexico City, the coronavirus has torn through Latin America's largest market. Mary Beth Sheridan, our Mexico City bureau chief, reports that Martin Mateo thought he had a cold, sore throat, body aches, runny nose. His son Carlos says his 50-year-old father had labored for decades as a tomatero, a tomato man, at Latin America's biggest food market, the Central de Abasto. He did not believe in the coronavirus until he started gasping for breath. Just ahead of Father's Day, he was dead. Scores of his fellow tomateros were also infected. The tomato aisle at the market offers a glimpse into why the virus has hit that country, our southern neighbor, so hard. It skived its way through the sprawling complex, picking off workers made vulnerable by the problems of poverty, chronic illnesses, distrust of government, and a need to keep earning money. While there are no official numbers, vendors can name dozens of people in the vegetable aisles alone who lost their lives. The green bean sellers, the chili vendors, the potato men, and one of the most brutal outbreaks in that city. Mexican officials have reported more than 20,000 coronavirus deaths in the country, undoubtedly an undercount. The virus entered the country with the upper class, people returning from business trips in Italy or skiing holidays in Colorado. But it spread quickly to low-income workers who have been hit the hardest. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, Jay Clayton is the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission and a longtime corporate lawyer with deep connections to Wall Street. He also golfed with the president last weekend in New Jersey but he has no experience as a federal prosecutor. After three years at the SEC, Clayton was widely expected to step down this year and return to New York, where he had spent decades as a top corporate lawyer. Instead, he has been thrust into a battle over leadership of the Southern District of New York, one of the most important jobs in all of government. U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr announced late Friday night that Trump intends to nominate Clayton to replace Manhattan U.S. Attorney Jeff Berman, who has been overseeing a number of investigations directly involving the president, his best friends like Rudy Giuliani, and his political campaign. But then a few hours later, Berman said he was not resigning, as Barr had announced, and on Saturday morning he shut up for work. The battle for control of the office escalated Saturday evening when Barr said Trump had fired Berman. 
Clayton faces an uphill battle to win Senate confirmation. Because Berman did not voluntarily step aside and force Trump to officially fire him, Barr cannot install the people he wanted in the office. So while Barr said in his Friday announcement he was putting in another U.S. attorney, Craig Carpenito, it now falls automatically to Berman's deputy, Audrey Strauss. Colleagues expect her to safeguard the office's independence, and her appointment brought a collective sigh of relief internally. Jim Comey, the former FBI director and deputy attorney general who once served as the Southern District of New York U.S. attorney in the aftermath of 9-11, says something stinks to high heaven in whatever Trump and Barr are up to. And former National Security Advisor John Bolton recounts in his new memoir that Trump privately floated the idea of intervening in an SDNY prosecution of a state-owned Turkish bank at the request of Turkey's president. Bolton, a Yale Law School graduate who held senior jobs in Ronald Reagan's Justice Department, told ABC News in an interview that aired last night that based on what he saw, it sure felt like the president was committing obstruction of justice. Number two. At Trump's rally in Tulsa on Saturday, the crowd did not fill the 19,000-seat Bank of Oklahoma Center with swaths of upper-level seating empty and plans for a presidential speech at an outdoor overflow area abruptly canceled because there were so few attendees in the space. In fact, according to the Tulsa Fire Marshal, just under 6,200 people entered the arena. Trump complained to aides about the crowd before he went on stage, and manager Brad Parscale was spotted sitting alone in the back of the arena. There's speculation among senior Trump political aides that Parscale may be sidelined. But don't let the palace intrigue distract us from the substance of what the president said. In addition to his coronavirus confession that I mentioned a few minutes ago, Trump also leaned into racial grievances as he attempted to jumpstart his flagging campaign. He referred to COVID-19 as the, quote, Kung Flu. He called racial justice demonstrators thugs. He attacked efforts to take down Confederate statues as an assault on, quote, our heritage. And in an ominous hypothetical, he described a, quote, very tough ombre breaking into a young woman's home while her husband is away on business. Trump demonstrated the extent to which the final four months of the 2020 election will build on the darker themes of a previous campaign, notable for its attacks on Muslims and Hispanic immigrants. On Saturday night, Trump also went after several Democratic women of color, in one instance accusing Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota for, quote, telling us how to run our country. Omar is a U.S. citizen. Number three, speaking of Minnesota, eight minority correctional officers at a county jail in the state say they were segregated from the area where Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer charged in George Floyd's death, was being held, and only white officers were allowed to guard or communicate with him. One corrections officer, who describes herself in a new discrimination complaint as a mixed-race woman, also suggests that Chauvin, who was filmed with his knee on Floyd's throat for nearly nine minutes, has been given special treatment at the Ramsey County Adult Detention Center in St. Paul. In a statement to Holly Bailey, she recalled watching security footage of a white female lieutenant who was granted special access to the ex-officer's cell on May 30th, sit on his bed and allow him to use her cell phone, a major policy violation. As the jail prepared for Chauvin's arrival, a supervisor pulled all officers of color from their regular duties, according to the complaints, and asked them to report to the third floor of the facility, away from the fifth floor where Chauvin would be transported and held in a secluded cell. 
The complaint says that all of them were replaced by white officers. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, June 22nd. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.